Father, we ask that you would humble us to receive your word this morning. Lord, we pray that as we hear your word, that you would shape and fashion us to be those who would be doers of your word. Lord, we ask for your help. We ask for the guidance of your Holy Spirit to produce change and transformation in our lives. Remind us of how much you've loved us in your son, Jesus. We ask you to use this time to grow us in our desire to love more like him, to look more like him. And Lord, we ask you to use this time to grow us in our ambition to please you. Lord, I pray you'd help me to faithfully preach your word, to clearly preach your word, that Christ would be exalted in Jesus' name. Amen. When you hear the word obedience, what comes to mind when you hear that word? Sometimes people may wrongly think of obedience as doing something that you really don't want to do, which reminds me of a part of my childhood. Uh, Saturday mornings were one of my least favorite times of the week. Now, they started off nicely. Back in the 1980s, that was Saturday morning cartoons. I'd I'd wake up with my brother, watch cartoons. We'd have breakfast. It started off really slow. But inevitably, that television set would get turned off by mom or dad, and it was Saturday morning chores, my least favorite time of the week. And we never were able to get out of those chores. They weren't an option. They were something that we had to do. I didn't want to spend my Saturday morning as an elementary student or a middle school student cleaning my room or worse, cleaning the bathroom or having to go outside and mow the lawn. But it was part of our life as a family. My brother and I regularly did those things which we did not really want to do. Well, coming back to that question, when you hear the word obedience, what comes to mind? It's wrong perspective to think of obedience, Christian obedience, as doing something that you really don't want to do. You see, for the Christian, obedience involves not only our actions, but the attitude of our heart. And the Apostle Paul, when he's calling the Thessalonian church to obedience, he sets a foundation, a motivation for them to grow in their ambition to please God more and more. In other words, obedience involves a proper ambition and motivation to honor God and actions that live out of that ambition. In our passage this morning, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're in verses 1 through 8. If you're new this morning, you can jump right in with us. We're going through this book of the Bible. That's most of what we do here at Oakhurst is just go through books of the Bible from start to finish. And we're going to be in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 this morning. The best way for you to follow along is to open up a copy of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible with you, take that Bible right in front of you and you can use that this morning. It's there in the pew racks. You can open that up to 1 Thessalonians 4. That's found on page 987. Page 987. We're going to be in verses 1 through 8 this morning. And if you've come and you don't own a Bible, take that Bible with you. Uh, We have a large supply of Bibles in the other buildings, so we're happy to restock those Bibles. If you want to take that with you this morning, truly, it's our gift to you. We'd love for you to take that Bible with you. Uh, read it and connect with someone here who can read God's Word with you. Let me read through all of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 as we begin our time. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, 
that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Well, the main idea that I want us to see in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8, is this. We must aim to please God and keep away from sexual immorality. It's the main idea of what we see here in this passage. We must aim to please God and keep away from sexual immorality. Now, chapter 4 begins the second half of this letter here, the second main section of the letter. And from the beginning of the letter up until now, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, and most of what he's been doing has just been encouraging them. He's been identifying evidence of God's grace in their life, encouraging them for the faith and the, the love that he sees present there in that congregation. He's been reminding them of the hope that they have in Jesus Christ and in his return. Chapter 3, it ended with Paul praying for them, praying that, that, that God would make them to increase and abound in love for one another and for everyone. In chapter 4, it turns towards commands and exhortations, reminding them of the commands of Christ, which they've already been instructed in. So it's not new information, but Paul and his visit there, and even Timothy and his return visit, they've received teaching. So he's stirring them up by way of reminder that they would walk in obedience to the commands of Christ. And the commands in this section begin with a focus on sexual purity. And the main command is to abstain from sexual immorality. So let me say this as we begin. This is a message for our whole church, not just for some members of our church, not just for younger members of our church, for every member of our church. The Apostle Paul, he wrote this instruction to the entire church. It's interesting to note that that church seemed to be doing well. It wasn't like Corinth where they were living in a real mess and he's correcting them. He's actually been commending them. And he even says here, you know, continue on what you are doing. Like, keep on going. But he had the whole church in view for this urgent message and instruction on sexual purity. And so this message is from our whole church, from students to senior citizens, something that we need to hear today. As a Christian church, we proclaim a message of love and grace found in Jesus Christ and his death and in his resurrection. We proclaim a message of hope and forgiveness that's found in the Lord Jesus Christ to all who believe. And together as a church, we have locked arms to live out this new life in Christ. We're called to be light in darkness. We face a battle. That's the metaphor we see throughout the New Testament, a spiritual battle. And we must aim in this spiritual battle to seek to please God and to live as His holy people. So I know that you didn't have an extra hour of sleep last night. I know you woke up this morning and it was raining. But let me tell you, there is no better place to be right now as God's people than right here, hearing His Word 
asking him to change us. Amen? And so we come to hear the word of the Lord. Let us consider how we can grow in pleasing God. I want to take that main point and break it down into two main or two separate points here as we go throughout this passage. So the main point divided into two points. First in verses one through two, let's consider this call to aim to please God more and more. Verses one and two, aim to please God more and more. Again, the letter takes a turn here in chapter 4, verse 1, with the word finally. So the content of the letter takes a shift towards commands. And this is a pattern that the Apostle Paul follows really in his letters. Whenever you see a therefore, or here we see the word follow, he's, he's changing his emphasis and focus. So often he starts off with what can be referred to as the indicative. And that simply means he's indicating what God has already done in Jesus Christ, his son. He then shifts often to the imperatives, which imperatives are just commands. So shifting from what God has done in Christ to Christian, therefore, as a result, finally, here's how you are to live. There's commands to obey. So we don't take those commands apart from what God has supplied in Jesus Christ. And we look to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we understand how, therefore, we now are to live in the spirit of Christ. So for the Christian, obedience is not drudgery. God's commands are not burdensome. Living in sexual purity, for the Christian, it's not like, oh, I really don't want to live like this, but I kind of feel like I have to. That's not Christian obedience. That's not a Christian attitude. Rather, as we look more and more to what God has already done for us in Jesus Christ, we have a growing desire to please Him. We want to live for Him. We want to live and, and love and look more like Jesus. That's our desire, struggle as we may. It's our desire. We get knocked down, and by the grace of God, we get back up, and we help each other get back up, and we keep going in this victory march to glory. Well, the Thessalonians, they were doing well spiritually. They were growing in their faith. They were growing in love. Paul wants them to keep on growing. Don't live off of past spiritual success. Keep growing. Keep going. Some of you can think, man, I was on fire for the Lord back in college. Well, what does your life look like now in your 40s? It's a wonderful period to be on fire for the Lord. But spiritual success in the past, we can't live off of that. We have to ask God for more and more that we would keep on growing. And that's what the Apostle Paul is guiding this young church too. With these commands, Paul now turns to the present to an urgent matter. Look there in verse 1. He says, finally then, brothers, we ask and we urge you. That's what exhortation is, urging. It's pleading. It's a, a warning. He has been encouraging them. Now he's, he's urging them. And he says, urging them in the Lord Jesus. So as an apostle, an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the apostle Paul trained by the risen Lord Jesus Christ, he's not inventing this teaching. Rather, he's received this teaching from the Lord Jesus who pointed to all the commands of the Old Testament, how they were fulfilled in Jesus, and how now God's people have been empowered to live in the spirit of Christ. So as an apostle, he's passing on instruction. He received directly from the Lord Jesus, and he's writing as one with the authority of Jesus. The urgent matter he's addressing in verse 1, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God 
just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Here in verse 1, we see the ambition of Christians to please God. The ambition of the world is to seek to please yourself, do what's pleasing in, in your eyes. The ambition of the Christian is aimed at doing what pleases God, what's pleasing in His sight. Now hear me correctly, when I say pleasing God, I don't mean earning favor, earning your acceptance from God. The only way to be accepted by the God who created you is by faith in Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews eleven six: without faith in Jesus, without faith, it is impossible to please Him. It's impossible to please God. You see, God sent Jesus down to earth to pay for our sins. If we could have pleased God on our own, well, then Christ died needlessly. That's what the Apostle Paul reasons elsewhere in the book of Galatians. But because you and I couldn't please God, our sin against God was so great that we couldn't possibly repay God the debt we owe Him for our sin against Him. In His love and His grace, He sent His Son Jesus down to earth, the Son of God, truly God and and truly man, and He came to die. He came to save. He came to lay that life down as a sacrifice on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And for all of those who put their trust in Jesus and His death and His resurrection from the dead, what Jesus accomplished on the cross gets applied to your life. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus yet, that's not been applied to your life. You've not yet been forgiven. You can be. You can turn and trust in Jesus today. You can know forgiveness of sin found in Jesus today, and I hope you do. We'd love to talk with you more. Any of our members, our pastors will all be at the door afterwards. We'd love to talk with you about that. Our church, what we rejoice in is that we've been set free by the blood of Christ, that He rose again on the third day, and we now have this new life in Christ that we're living out together. We've been accepted because of Jesus, and then our ambition gets changed. Our ambition changes, and it grows to desire to honor and to please God. So pleasing God, we're not talking about earning your salvation. Rather, we're talking about those who've been saved who've been set free from the power of sin, set free from a life of displeasing God, transformed by Christ to live a life pleasing to Him. So think of pleasing God, not in terms of acceptance, but rather in terms of ambition. It's our common ambition as Christians to want to please God. Those who belong to Christ, have a growing ambition to please our Father in heaven. Now, this motivation is seen throughout the New Testament for following Jesus, obeying Jesus, that the motivation, the foundation, is an ambition to please God. Let me read a few passages for you throughout the New Testament, some of them from the Apostle Paul and other letters that he's written. You can simply jot these references down. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. Walk as children of the light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
Colossians 3.20, a helpful passage for children. What's your motivation, children, in obeying your parents? Colossians 3.20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Brother and sister in the Lord, you grow in obedience to God as you grow in your ambition to please Him. And if we are to please God, we must grow in our desire to obey God's Word. The urging that the Apostle Paul had was do this more and more. You're already doing this. Do this more and more. So he's talking about grow. Like keep growing. Grow more and more in this ambition. Seek to please God more and more in your actions and your thoughts and your words. Good questions, Christian, to ask yourself. Is your life increasingly pleasing to God? How can you please God more and more with your words? How can you seek to please God more and more with your thoughts? Last week we thought about this call to have kind thoughts, particularly about other members of this church. Well, how could you grow in that more and more? We see in verse 2, the Thessalonians, they were not receiving new instructions. Rather, they were being called, do this more and more. We all need that urging to seek God more and more. What does that look like for you this week, Christian? What would it look like for you to seek to please God more and more this week? A good starting point is in our prayer list this week. Things we're, we're praying for in our lives. It's a, it's a good thing to pray for your own soul. Some of you may have heard of that old prayer model, the concentric circle model. Simply put, it means you start praying for your own soul and then kind of work your way out. What that looks like in my prayer time, praying for my own soul, praying for my wife, my kids, extended family, church family, neighbors, coworkers, so on, so on. A good prayer to pray for your own soul Ask God for a growing ambition to please Him. And then work out and pray that for the souls of others around you. Ask Him for a growing displeasure for what displeases God. That we'd be sensitive to God and what He wants. Well, let's consider next with that foundation laid. Let's consider the bulk of what we see in this passage in verses 3 through 8. Point 2, please God by keeping away from sexual immorality. Please God by keeping away from sexual immorality. Do you ever find yourself asking, what is God's will? I do. Is that question, what's God's will for this or that? Well, the first place we want to look for that answer is God's Word. God reveals His will in His Word. God's Word contains His moral will, His design, His his plan. He's made it plain and clear in His Word what He requires. He's made it plain in His Word what He forbids. He's made it clear what He expects of us as Christians, that therefore how we should live by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can put His Word into practice. In verse 3, we read about God's will 
for every Christian in this room. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. God's will for the Thessalonians, for you, is sanctification. That, that means growth in holiness. Sanctification, it's a process of growth in holiness. So, so growing, you've already been converted by God's grace, through faith alone in Jesus, you've been justified, set free from sin. The righteous life of Christ counted as yours, your sin transferred to Him and put to death because of Christ. And for those who've come to know Jesus, been converted, there's God's will, His plan here, your sanctification, growth in likeness to Christ, living and loving more like Jesus. That language in verse 1, more and more, that's process language. It's even showing us there that, that, that sanctification, it's not like you become a Christian and, and boom, all your problems are solved. And, and you might have been on fire for the Lord and felt like, man, that, that fire's cooled off. Maybe hardship has set in, difficulties have set in. Maybe you're, you're experiencing some failure in an area of your life when it comes to obeying God. That's normal. This is a process, meaning that, that more and more we seek to honor and please God, that more and more we confess sin in our lives and seek to, to repent and continue walking in faith in Jesus. You see, through faith in Christ, Christians have been united to Jesus, His righteousness counted to us, giving us a holy status. I mean, we're brought into His, his family, counted as one of His, but at the same time, sanctification is an ongoing process. It begins the moment you're converted. You receive the Holy Spirit, and that continues on the rest of your life here on earth until Christ returns or until we go to be with Him in glory. And while sanctification is a work of the Holy Spirit in your life, hear me correctly, it's not a 50-50 partnership. Like, well, God does His part and I do my part. That's not what we see in the Bible. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's better described as God is at work in us, therefore we work. God is at work in His Holy Spirit, producing fruit in our lives, and therefore we work. While sanctification is a work of the Holy Spirit in your life, you also have a responsibility in your growth to seek to obey. Christian growth involves your grace-driven effort to seek to obey. It required effort to be here this morning. You had to get up and get ready and, and follow through on coming to church, to be here, to sit under the preaching of God's Word and to worship. Now, the first area of growth and holiness that Paul reminds them of is sexual immorality. This is why I love expositional preaching, because it just goes through what we see in God's Word. And God's Word sets the priority for what we're going to talk about. What we saw this morning, the first item of agenda, not in my agenda, not on the elders of Oakhurst Baptist Church's agenda, it's an important topic, sure, but the Apostle Paul, first item of agenda when it comes to sanctification, sexual immorality. Now, sexual purity is not all that there is to holiness. It's not all that there is to sanctification. Holiness and sanctification is to encompass every area of our life, every relationship, but the area of sanctification that Paul addresses first is that they abstain from sexual immorality. We'd be, do well to consider that this morning. Sexual morality, what is it? We need to be clear what it is. Sexual morality is, is any 
sexual relation outside of heterosexual marriage. I have to give that clarification at the end because the laws of our land are different than God's law. Sanctification in sexual immorality. Simply put, any sexual relation outside of heterosexual marriage, a husband and his wife, goes against God's plan and His design. God created man and woman, Adam and and Eve, both in His likeness and His image. Two distinct ways to live as a human being, man and woman. And it was God's idea and His creation, marriage. Before sin ever came into the world, before sin existed, marriage existed. And God created sex. We can talk about that in church because that's a good thing. It's what we see in the the Bible. It's been polluted through the sin of this world and selfishness and rebellion against God. But sex is a good thing that God created and He gave to married couples, to husband and to wife. Sexual immorality goes outside of God's moral will. He's the inventor of sex. He sets the boundaries. He holds the patent, if you will, as the inventor on sex. And therefore, he is the one who can authoritatively speak on who it's for and the boundaries for it. Sexual immorality goes outside of God's moral will, outside of his plan, outside of his good design. This includes premarital sex, adultery, homosexual acts. It goes beyond actions to thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So it includes our our thoughts. It also includes which is something that's all too pervasive in our society. It's become more accessible through technology. Pornography is sexual immorality. Christians are called to grow in holiness and to abstain from all of that, to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, to abstain means to keep away from, to keep away from, which includes your mind and your heart. Certainly your body, keep away from, but your mind and your heart keep far away from sexual immorality. And abstaining is different from fasting. Fasting is taking a break from something good. Abstaining is staying away from something evil. Fasting is for a a period of time. Abstaining is to be ongoing. So, So Christian fasting most commonly involves not eating food. Food is something good. Praise the Lord, it is. We shouldn't eat too much of it, but it's something good that we can enjoy and delight in. But Christian fasting involves temporarily refraining from something good like food in order to pray and to seek the Lord. It's a a spiritual practice I would commend to you. But you refrain from meals just from a period of time. It's not like you decide, oh, I'm going to abstain from food the rest of my life. You, You won't live past 40 days if you can make it that long, right? So you don't abstain from food. You fast from food, and then you go back and you eat again. So fasting is different from abstaining. You don't fast from evil. By God's grace, you abstain from evil. This means that Christians cannot take a fasting approach to sexual immorality. It's not just, well, I'm going to stay away from this for a period of time and then might allow some accommodations to come back in when I start to feel hungry. 
Seeing how close you can get to sexual immorality is not abstaining. Thinking that you'll stay away from actions like doing something with another individual, but looking at pornography on your phone is not abstaining from sexual immorality. Thinking as long as you don't have these thoughts too often, then that's okay. That's not abstaining. That's accommodating. You see, abstaining involves grace-driven effort, turning away from and striving to stay away from what displeases God. And abstaining from sexual immorality is the call of every single Christian. Again, keep in mind, Paul's writing to obedient disciples. They've received instruction. They're, they're walking in obedience. He's saying, like, keep doing as you have been doing. Uh, they were taught personally by him. I mean, what, a, what an awesome opportunity to be taught directly from the apostle Paul. Well, well taught, right? Can't get a better human teacher than the apostle Paul. He taught personally by him, yet he's urging them to abstain from sexual immorality, which helps us know this is a temptation and a threat to all of the church, young and old, men and women, married and single, new believers, those who've known Jesus for a while, elders of the church, every member of the church, everyone. We all face temptation. We all deal with cravings of the flesh. We are all targets of Satan, the tempter. That's what the Apostle Paul called Satan in the last chapter. He's a, he's a tempter. And consider his temptation. Satan's temptation in this area, so often on the front end, is to try to make you think, this really isn't that big of a deal. Yeah, you know, Dave just said everyone struggles with this, so it's okay if I struggle with this. I'm kind of like everyone else. It's not that big of a deal. That's the temptation oftentimes on the front end. And then on the back end, after you've repented, God, forgive me for that thought that act. After you've sincerely repented, the temptation on the back end often is shame, that you're worthless, that you're a lost cause, that you'll never see victory in this area of your life. It's shame and despair often the temptation on the back end. Well, I think this passage speaks the truth of God to both of those lies, to both of those temptations. It is true in this passage, we see God cares a lot about sexual immorality. And it's also true in this passage, there is hope for the Christian to persevere, to grow. There is hope to please God more and more in this area. And so the way I want to approach the rest of this passage is just to ask a few questions that we can find an answer to in this passage. That's how we're going to approach the rest of this passage, a few questions. The first question do Christians make too big of a deal of this? Meaning sexual immorality. Do Christians make too big of a deal of this? I mean, where else are you going to hear this message this morning? Where else in Charlotte can you go to hear abstain from sexual immorality, not celebrate it, not go head first into it? Well, look at this passage. We can see clearly that God cares a lot about sexual immorality. For starters, consider why does this topic make its way to the top of the list? Why did the Apostle Paul address this first? He could have chosen other important things that God hates. He could have chosen jealousy, greed, pride. There's lots of things that could have made its way to the top of the list that we need to consider if we're going to grow 
spiritually. But, but why sexual immorality first? Again, we don't have any indication that this is a corrective. He said, just as you are doing, keep doing more and more. So it's not like I need to correct them, something terrible is going on in the church. I, I don't think that's what's happening here. Again, Paul's addressing obedient disciples, but he's reminding them and urging them. He's giving them a warning. And in other words, this is a, a threat. Now, I heard this week as I was reading through different materials, if you look at other letters Paul's written, he'll give lists of sin. They're called, often called vice lists. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6 is one place. Uh, Galatians 5, you see the deeds of the flesh. Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians 3. And in these lists, a number of sins are listed off. But, but what I read this week, that only two of these sins appear on every list. Idolatry and sexual immorality. Make its way to every, and I think those two things really go together. Idolatry and, and sexual immorality. In other words, this is an important threat to the heart and life of a Christian. The Apostle Paul also addresses us. Sometimes we may think, well, you know, all sin's the same. But Christians should not have this mindset of moral equivalence towards sin. 1 Corinthians 6 helps us with that. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Let me read this for us. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. All sin is evil. All sin displeases God. Jesus paid the price for every single sin. That's true. So all sin condemns us before God. All sin is needed to be confessed before God in the name of Jesus. And at the same time, the Apostle Paul points in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to show the damage, the specific damage that something like sexual immorality can do to your own soul and to others. He says sexual sin, believers, is sin against your own body. And for a believer who's been filled with the Holy Spirit of God, we've been bought and paid for with a price. We've been freed and empowered to glorify God in this body that he has redeemed. And so the Apostle Paul speaks to this in very careful and clear language as a danger and as a threat. We can even just look around at advertisements and entertainment. Why does sex show up in everything? I mean, sometimes in advertisements, that, I mean, like hamburgers, which has nothing to do with sex. Like, what in the world is that doing, advertising a double cheeseburger on sale? It has nothing to do with it. Well, why? Well, it's appealing to us. Advertisers know this. Something to catch your attention. Something to get you to stop doing what you're doing. Something to get you to devote your attention and affection somewhere. And it's just the old trick of Satan, the tempter. Sex catches our attention. It has appeal. It, it can draw us away from our devotion to the Lord. We also see down in verse 6 how much God cares about sexual immorality. We read there that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So giving in to sexual immorality, it sins against your own body. But it also does damage to others. It does damage to your own soul but also harms others. Sexual sin involves transgressing and wronging someone else. To transgress, it means to overstep. 
to, to cross a boundary and to take something that does not belong to you. That's exactly what sexual immorality is. Notice in verse 6, the language there says, wronging his brother. And that seems to be a warning against adultery in the church. And in the context of this passage, I think at a minimum, this is referring to adultery, that it causes great damage. It tears apart the very fabric of a marriage. It's not beyond repair and the grace of the Lord Jesus covering that sin, but adultery, those strong warnings are given because of the damage that it does cause to marriage and to children and even to the church family. But I think even beyond adultery, verse 6, it's connected to verse 3 and 4. It's all together, one thought there. So therefore, this language of transgressing and doing wrong, I think it certainly applies to all types of sexual immorality. All sexual immorality involves taking something that does not belong to you. Whether that involves you being married or single, if they're not your spouse, you're transgressing and taking something God has not given you. Sexual relationships outside of marriage, they involve taking someone who doesn't belong to you. Therefore, every act of sexual morality, it causes harm. There's no such thing as just kind of a personal, private sin. That, that sexual sin hurts spouses and family members and church family members as well. And while this sin hurts others, it also dishonors God. So we see a horizontal aspect there in verse 6 of sexual immorality, sinning against others, yet there's also a vertical aspect, first and foremost, of primarily sinning against God. Look down in verse 8. We read, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. To live in the sinful passions of the flesh is to sin against God. To disregard the command to abstain from sexual immorality is to disregard God Himself. And for those who persist, unrepentant in that sin, who don't turn away, God will execute justice. Verse 6 tells us the Lord is an avenger. And an avenger is one who executes justice. He will bring justice for those harmed, and He will bring justice and judge those who transgress His law and disregard Him. So if you're calling yourself a Christian this morning, and you're living in sexual immorality, I mean, giving yourself over to a pattern of life, I don't know what you mean when you call yourself a Christian. Jesus doesn't lead you. Like being a Christian means you're following Jesus, and Jesus never leads you to sexual immorality. Rather, He provides the way out, He provides the way of escape, He provides the way to be set free. He, he paves the way for us to please God and to glorify Him and to honor Him. And if you're a Christian this morning, giving yourself over to that, this is a moment, probably a moment of many moments, God's given you to confess to Him, to get right with Him. I'll talk more about that in just a little bit because I want it to be how we think about closing out our, our time. But all this to say God cares a great deal about sexual purity and sexual immorality, and therefore, so will His people. Well, the second question I want to deal with is victory possible? Is victory possible? Sometimes there's this wrong attitude 
in this area of sexual immorality amongst Christians, where this thinking is, I'm never going to experience victory in this area. And I would suggest to you that is a temptation from Satan himself, one of despair, one that's not found in hope in Jesus. We should be sober-minded as we consider sexual immorality, but don't miss the hope contained in this very passage. Now, there's two contrasts Paul draws in verse 4 and 5, two ways of living in regard to sexual immorality. One is being controlled by the Spirit, and the other is being controlled by the flesh. He distinguishes the two, being controlled by the Spirit and being controlled by the flesh. Down in verse 8, we read that Christians have the Holy Spirit given to us, and therefore we have hope. So Christian, you're controlled by the Spirit of God in you. At the moment of your conversion, when by God's grace you repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, He sent His Holy Spirit to live inside of you, to cause you to have this desire to want to please God and to strengthen you to obey. God gave you the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of you and to carry you through the whole process of sanctification all the way until glory with Jesus. So Christian, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you were made alive in Christ. You used to be dead in your sin, Ephesians 2.1. But verse 4, you were made alive in Christ through faith in Him and therefore empowered to keep God's commands. And for the Christian, this command in verse 4, again, it's not burdensome. It should give us hope. This command is being given to people filled with the Holy Spirit. To Paul's commanding in verse 4, it directs us that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So we will face battles against sexual immorality. The command to control your body implies you will face the temptation to not control your body regularly. This side of glory. Don't be surprised by that, Christian. I think it applies to that. We're going to face this temptation. So we should be sober-minded as we read this, but we should also be hopeful that the confidence that Christians have, it's found in the Holy Spirit of God. Fruit of the Holy Spirit, self-control. That He's given to every Christian to exercise self-control. There's hope in the Spirit in this command that through the Spirit of God in you that you're strengthened to maintain control of your body and walk in sexual holiness. That, that holiness and, and victory in temptation is possible in the life of the Christian. In fact, I'd say beyond possible, it's, it's expected in the life of the Christian that those filled with the Holy Spirit will exercise self-control over their bodies in holiness and in honor. Simply put, for the Christian, your body does not control you. By the power of the Holy Spirit in you, you control your body. That's good news. That should give us hope, every single believer in this room. Now, Paul contrasts that with what we see in verse 5 of being controlled by the flesh. The other way of living is in the passion of sexual lust controlling your body. We read in verse 4 that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So Gentiles here refers to those who are not Christians, those who don't know God. They live in the passion of lust. That means we all did before Christ. We were just surrendered to that passion, hopeless 
and helpless apart from God in this world. And the Apostle Paul draws living in the passion of lust as evidence that their hearts are far from God. He draws a distinction here for those who are outside of Christ, for those who who don't know God, they will think nothing's wrong with sexual immorality. There might be some self-imposed standards of, of morality that get applied to that. But we see back in Thessalonica, they saw nothing wrong with sexual immorality, those outside of Christ. And that's true here today in Charlotte. In fact, what I'm sharing up here would seem absurd probably to many who are outside of Christ. If you're a college student, I've been talking to my kids who are high school students, that if they go off to a college, which we're considering a number of different types of of colleges, but if they went to a college like I did across town at UNC Charlotte, you might be the one person on your floor seeking to honor God and live in sexual purity. You might be the one person on your dorm floor. You're going to see odd, old-fashioned, puritanical all kinds of things that might be directed your way as being absurd. And even some might try to condemn you as you seek to honor God as just being a judgmental prude. This seems absurd unless you're in Christ. And then it becomes our ambition. It becomes our desire and how we want to live. And it's important the Apostle Paul points here to say that one way that Christians stand out from the world, it's not like they'll know us by our Christian t-shirts. They'll know us by like kind of how we look, like they can point us out and see like, Oh, he must be a Christian. Just look at his haircut and look at the t-shirt that he's, he's wearing. Well, no. The Apostle Paul points out here that one way we stand out, an important way we stand out from the world, is how we view sex and sexuality. And increasingly in our society, that's going to be seen as absurd. Before you knew God, Christian, you sought to please yourself and sexual passions. But by God's grace, you've been freed in knowing God to seek to please him more and more. And therefore, we have every reason in Christ to fight against sexual morality and seek to control our bodies. For those who've trusted in Jesus, we've been freed from living in the passion of lust. We still deal with the presence of sin, and that's hard. Romans chapter 6, verse 14 explains this reality to us that the, the power of sin, if you've put your faith in Jesus, the power of sin has been lifted from you. Romans 6, 14, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace, freed from the power of sin over you. Therefore, there's hope. Therefore, victory in the battle is possible. The war has already been won through Jesus Christ. Through his death on the cross, he defeated Satan and sin and death. He rose from the dead and new life on the third day. And through repentance and faith in Jesus, he gives this new life and the Holy Spirit to live out this new life to anyone who would put their faith in him. The war has been won in Christ. We've already been freed from the power of sin. But Christian, I think this passage tells us the war is not over. Far from it. There are many battles yet to be fought. War has been won. Daily battles. Sadly, we will lose some of those daily battles. If you expect that there's not going to be a battle, you're not prepared. I mean, the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 6, he talks about armor for the battle that God has given every Christian to prepare us. There is a battle. In 1 John, we're called to keep on confessing our sin. That's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. We'll do that in just a moment at the Lord's table. That implies we're going to struggle with sin. But struggling also comes with victory. Struggling isn't being dead. Struggling isn't resigning yourself to sin. 
Struggle isn't just giving up and throwing in the towel. Struggling is saying, by the grace of God, I keep marching forward. The Lord has given us His Holy Spirit to endure these battles. We will suffer some failures, but we should also expect victory in controlling our bodies. And even as we suffer failure, may we confess that to the Lord and seek renewed strength to stay in the battle. Well, finally, I want to close with a third question. How should I think about growing in this area? How should I think about growing in this area? Well, for all of us, Paul was writing to to obedient Christians, again, encouraging them to keep on pleasing God and obeying Him. So we must all be sober-minded in this area. Again, he was urging and warning everyone, we need to be on the alert in this area. So the, the first direction I can give you, talk to the Lord. Pray regularly for your own soul to walk in sexual purity, to abstain from sexual morality. Pray for your spouse. Pray with your spouse. Pray for other members of this church. Pray with other members of this church that we would grow in our desire to please God, that we would walk in His spiritual protection, that He would protect us from sexual sin, and that we would be strengthened to exercise self-control. So first and foremost, talk to the Lord. Second, talk to other church members. When it comes to friendships in this church, This should be an area that comes up in your conversation. I just said friendships in this church. So if you're going to lunch with another member of the church for the first time, it may not be a good question to bring up. How are you struggling with sexual sin? But if it doesn't come up in any of your relationships in this church, if it never comes up, like how are you doing in this area? You know, how are you seeing God's grace? Where are you? What is temptation? It's just a simple question. Our, our staff, we meet together once a month. We have our own little small group where we just try to take a lunch. And one of the questions we ask one another, what does temptation look like for you these days? Just talk about these areas of your life. Talk about this with other church members. These should be safe relationships where we seek help. How are you doing with walking in sexual purity? Again, friendships. Think about that. Who are you being intentional with in this church to seek accountability in this area? And I do want to say, if you're giving yourself over to sexual immorality, again, people are going to be in different places here this morning. And I'm glad each and every one of you are here. But if you're here and you're listening, you know what? I'm stuck in this area. I'm I'm giving myself over. Don't keep that in isolation. Don't keep it quiet. You're not going to grow through it by just remaining silent. Please get help by sharing that with someone who can help you. I want to say any of our elders, we'd be happy to talk with you. If you come and and share with us that you're struggling in this area, we will not hammer you. We will help you. We want to help you walk in sexual purity. We want to help you walk in a way that pleases God. We will do everything we can to help you. Some of you may be stuck right now. Some of you may be wearing the shame for something you've already repented of. Some of you may be in a season where by God's grace you're experiencing victory. That's wonderful. Together, though, let's guard one another and encourage one another. Talk to the Lord. Talk to other church members. Finally, take great measures Take great measures. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members 
than that your whole body be thrown into hell. You should go to great measures to abstain from sexual immorality and walk in purity. That might look different for different people. There's not just all sorts of things we're going to make up that you can't have a smartphone or you can't have a, a Netflix subscription. But, but some of you, you're finding yourself in that smartphone stumbling again and again. And you need to consider what taking great measures looks like to get accountability, to, to sign up for one of these software programs, to have an accountability partner in here. I've known those who've gone to dumb phones because they've decided, I don't need all of this. I've known those who've gone off of social media because they've said, what good is Instagram and just looking at picture after picture after picture that can lead my heart to covet and lust? It's not saying everybody needs to go cancel an Instagram account today, but maybe you need to consider if something's not helping you, and in fact you're falling in sin again and again through your phone, through entertainment, what would that look like to take great measures to walk in sexual Period. That's a good thing to talk about with another member of this church. A good thing to seek counsel from an older Christian or an elder here in this church. There is a call to put off and to put on, to put off sexual morality, to grow in your relationship with Christ, to grow in your desire to please Him. So take great measures for Christian growth too. Keep coming to church. Take notes during the sermon. Come to the 9, 15 a.m. equipping hours. Come back and hear God's word again preached on Sunday night. Meet with someone in a discipling relationship. This isn't just about putting off and staying away from danger, but putting on the life of Christ in ways that you can grow in your relationship with Christ. The whole message here, keep growing, keep going, keep giving yourself to Christian growth. As we come this morning to the Lord's table, we're reminded of the hope and the help that we have in Jesus. Ultimately, we won't have an ambition to please God apart from Jesus. At our baptism, we made that initial profession of faith. I'm with Jesus. My, my faith is in Him. I've been bought and paid for with a price by the blood of Jesus Christ, buried with Him in baptism and raised again to walk in newness of life. And the ongoing profession of faith, baptism was the one time. Johnny, I know I'm getting in your sermon next week. The ongoing profession of faith, it's the Lord's Supper. We keep trusting in the body in the blood of Jesus Christ. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Let's bow and pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would give us hope and help this morning for those who are in Christ, that we would look to Jesus and be reminded of your love for us in Christ, that you would increase our desire and ambition to please you, that you would strengthen us with the battle. We thank you for the spiritual armor you've already provided, and we pray for wisdom and strength and help in picking up that armor and putting it on and helping one another put it on and taking it up again and again. And Lord, we ask for victory. We ask for victory over temptation and sexual immorality. We ask for a greater dependence and reliance on you that we would grow in our faith. We ask for your spiritual protection and your help. Lord, turn our eyes to look at Christ. May we be filled with hope in him. In Jesus' name, amen.